As some of you know, we're going through a series this summer in the Psalms, and we've been looking at different Psalms, and we come today, I've just been sort of prayerfully choosing some of the different Psalms, and we've landed on the 103rd Psalm, and I have to say that this is one of my favorite Psalms. I just absolutely love this Psalm. I I find myself gravitating toward it. I find myself meditating on it. I find that oftentimes when I'm talking to people, I'm referring to it. Uh, Sometimes in counseling, I'm, I'm bringing it to bear on the issues that we're dealing with in the counseling. It's just, it is a great, great word, this 103rd Psalm. As someone said, this... Or there is more in this psalm than a thousand pens could write on. It is one of those all-comprehending scriptures, which is a Bible in itself. And that's really true. Uh, You find sometimes maybe a chapter or a psalm or even sometimes just a, a scripture itself. Sometimes just a sentence where it's like the whole of the biblical revelation is captured in just that that brief. Uh, statement. And that's the case here with this 103rd Psalm. It is just, it's kind of the, the whole gospel is really wrapped up right here in this Psalm. And we're going to see that as we go through it. The Psalm is uh, written by David. And as I mentioned before, he wrote many of the Psalms, but not all of them. And it is a call to worship. It is an exhortation to the soul to bless the Lord for who he is and for all that he has done. And it's really a reminder to us to count our blessings and to give the glory, the honor, and the praise to the one who is worthy, and that's the Lord. And and I want you to notice as the psalm begins, David says, bless the Lord, O my soul. So he's not... He's actually not preaching to somebody else. He's speaking to himself. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. It's, it's like he's, he's um, going to speak to his own heart and arouse himself spiritually to worship. And, you know, we need to do that sometimes because we can grow uh, dull spiritually. Our hearts can become hard, and we can lose sight of how good God is and find ourselves not really inclined toward worship or prayer or thanksgiving. Sometimes we can find ourselves more toward uh, complaining and grumbling about things and just kind of have, generally speaking, kind of having an unthankful attitude. And we're all prone to that. We, we all can, can go there. David evidently could go there. And that's why he's, he's preaching to himself in a sense. And you know, that's a thing that we as believers need to do often. We need to preach to ourselves. Some have suggested that we regularly preach the gospel to ourselves. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom to that. I need to constantly be reminding myself of who God is and his goodness and what he's done and thinking about where he's brought me from and all of those things. And the person who does that, 
the person who keeps all of that fresh in their mind is the person that's going to live in a place of rejoicing, going to live in a place of uh, thankfulness, and, and really in a place of blessing. Because when you have that, that grateful attitude, you know, along with it, just, there's a blessing that comes. And so David exhorts us to speak to our own souls, to bless the Lord. And he says, and forget not all his benefits. And you know, I think it's the case often when we forget all that God has done for us, that's when we can grow sort of hard and dull. That's when we can become um, somewhat unthankful. So it's a good thing to keep reminding ourselves of what God has done and where he's brought us from and how he's delivered us. It's, it's a good thing to do that. And so David, he goes here in verses uh, three through five, and he lists some of the benefits that he just mentioned. And at the top of his list is forgiveness, who forgives all your iniquities. That's right there. That's where it starts. Forgiveness. Forget not all of his benefits. What, what benefits are we talking about? Well, number one, we're talking about forgiveness. We have been forgiven by God. We have been completely forgiven. You see, when God forgives, he doesn't just forgive partially. And he doesn't just forgive temporarily. When God forgives us, he forgives us totally and, and permanently. And we need to remember that. And what is it that we've been forgiven of? Who forgives us of all our iniquities. The word iniquity is a strong word. There's words like sin. There's words like transgression. And then there's words like iniquity. And iniquity, the word iniquity is, is a word that kind of describes the evilness of sin. You know, sin means to miss the mark. That's the meaning of the word. But iniquity is like a deeper thing because it's not just missing the mark, but it's talking about the evilness that is, is behind the missing of the mark. And I like to remind people that what the gospel forgives us of are real sins, real sins, serious things that we have done in violation of God's word. And there's not a single thing that any person has done that is unforgivable. You know, the Bible is clear. There's only one unforgivable sin. And that, that for unforgivable sin is to not receive the forgiver, Jesus. All other sin, as Jesus himself said, will be forgiven. The only one that can't be forgiven is the rejection of the forgiver. And so whatever our sins might be and the guilt of those sins and, and the shame that comes along with that and the, the potential punishment of sin that will inevitably come for those who do not receive the, the forgiveness, all of that we have been freed from. We've been freed from the guilt. We've been freed from the shame. And listen, if you've received Jesus Christ, your past sins are gone. God is not, he doesn't keep a record of those things. And the Psalm 
makes that clear to us. Remember what it says here in verses 10 and also 12. In 10, it says, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Verse 11, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Listen, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. There's a passage in Micah, the very end of the prophet Micah, and it says that God has taken our sins and he's cast them into the depths of the sea. So when you, as a person who believes in Jesus, when you fall under uh, like a condemnation over all of the things that you've done in your past, maybe, and you start thinking about that and that starts weighing you down and you start feeling condemned over it and all of this guilt is overwhelming you, this is what you need to know. It's not God who's putting that trip on you because God has removed our iniquities from us as far as the, as the east is from the west. He's removed them as far as possible. He remembers our sins and our lawless deeds no more. That's the beauty of forgiveness of sins. I heard the story recently about a young man who, uh, in an attempted robbery, he ended up committing a murder. He didn't intend to murder anyone, but in the course of the robbery, he did murder. The, as he was trying to rob the person, the person fought back, and he ended up picking up a club and hitting the person in the head, and, it, and the person died. But nobody was there. Nobody saw it. And it was a mystery as to, you know, what had happened. And that person, that young man was never found out. And for about 20 years, he lived under the crushing guilt of having killed that person. And as time went on, he came into contact with the gospel. And he heard about the forgiveness that Jesus brings. And he asked Christ into his life and he received the forgiveness of God. And immediately he knew that he needed to go to the police and turn himself in for that crime that nobody had ever found out, you know, how it happened. So he went to the police. He told them what happened. He took them back to the date. And initially they thought this, you know, this guy's making this up. This isn't true. But as they followed up, they found out it was absolutely true. And yes, indeed, he was the, the one who perpetrated the crime. And someone had, had asked him in this process uh, if, he, if he was fearful about now having to go to prison. And you know what his response was? He says, oh, absolutely not. He said, no, I've already been in prison. I was in prison for 20 years. I was in a state of torture for 20 years, just living with the guilt of that. And he talked about how he was so completely set free from that guilt that going to prison as a prospect didn't faze him in the least. There was no prison on earth, he thought, that could match the prison that his, the guilt of his sin had put him in. So he was completely free. And he ended up uh, not actually being put in prison because it was so obvious to the judge that he, had, he was a different person, you know, having come in and confessed and so forth. But, but the point in the story is the crushing burden of the guilt of sin that was destroying his life. And we all know that to some degree. 
We all look back at certain things in our past, and still today, oftentimes we're haunted by those things. But listen, know this. He's removed our iniquities from us as far as the east is from the west. And this is, this is what David is saying. And, and remember, David had his own sins, right? David was just like us. He was a sinner. David could look back in his history and he could remember an adultery. He could also remember setting up the husband of the woman he committed adultery with to be killed in a battle. So these were heavy, heavy sins that David committed under the Mosaic law for either thing you should have been put to death. But the Lord had mercy on David. He, his life was spared. He had certain consequences that he lived with, but he knew firsthand the benefit of having his iniquities forgiven. And that's where the list starts. He's forgiven our iniquities. But then it says that he heals all your diseases. Another benefit, God heals us. You know, he heals us from the past. He heals us from uh, the, the consequences of, of living with uh, the virus of sin. We're all infected with the same virus that eventually kills us. It's sin. And sin has consequences. But you know, when you come to Christ, he heals us of those things, those diseases of the soul. He also heals us of bodily afflictions at times. And I think David was probably thinking about both things when he spoke of healing of diseases here. Because in the Psalms, again, as we read through, there are certain Psalms where David describes himself as being physically afflicted, having uh, an ailment and crying out and, and being in a deep depression or, or being in a state where he thought that he was perhaps going to die of this affliction, but then he recovered. And he recognized that it was the Lord who was the one who healed him. Now, of course, in those days, they didn't have the medical advancements that we have today and you know the medicines and all of that sort of thing. So back in those days when you were healed, you were pretty certain it was God who did it. But you know, it's God who does it today as well, regardless of the means. When a person is healed of a disease, it's because God builds our bodies to do that first of all, but it's because God intervenes. We prayed recently, somewhat recently for uh, a friend over in Huntington Beach, uh, Pastor Sumo, and we've been praying for him. He was diagnosed with cancer, maybe you remember, with colon cancer and liver cancer. And as I was sharing first service this morning, I looked over in this part of the room and I saw a guy sitting there with a big gray beard. And I thought, well, that can only be Sumo. There's nobody else that has a beard like that. And sure enough, it was him. And uh, we got to talking afterwards and he was telling me that in his recent visit to the doctor and his, the most, his most recent test, the doctor came back. He said, this guy is not only not a believer, he's a, real, he's a pretty hard-nosed guy. And he came back and he said, well... I gotta tell you that I don't know what's going on here, but you don't have any cancer in your liver anymore. And the doctor, the, the doctor went on to say, he said, you know, these prayers and your God, I'm telling you right now, uh, there's something happening there because there's no, there is no medical explanation for what we're seeing on these tests. 
And we see that, and we have seen that many times over. Many years ago, 30 plus years ago, I met a guy, he was a golf instructor, he was a golf pro at a local golf course. And we met, and the first thing he told me when I met him, he said, I wanna tell you my story. He said, um, I was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He said, I had all kinds of issues. I went in for exploratory surgery. They opened me up and they immediately closed me up and said, nothing we can do for you. Sent me home to die. He said, said he went home. I think he was in his, you know, maybe like his late 30s, early 40s at the time. And he just said he was so heartbroken. He looked at his children and they, they were not yet grown or married. And he thought, I'm gonna miss their, I'm gonna miss their wedding and I'm gonna miss their lives and grandchildren and all of that. It was, you know, very depressing for him. And he was just crying out to God. He had recently become a Christian. And he said that he went out in his backyard and he sat down and he just said, God, I don't wanna die. And he said, a peace came on him like he'd never known before. And a voice spoke to him and said, you're fine. I've taken care of it. Went back to the doctor. Sure enough, I don't know what's happened, the doctor said, but you have no cancer in your body. That guy's still alive today. And, you know, the Lord healed him. And he told me, <laughs> he, he actually told me at the time, he said, you know, he said, I, I just made a commitment to the Lord that I'm going to tell this story to everybody I meet. I said, well, it's a good story. You ought to tell it to everybody you meet. But it's just illustrating the point that we're making here, that the Lord heals us of diseases. Not, not always, but when we do get healed, know this, whether it's through a doctor or whether it's just through the, the natural, seemingly natural process of, of your body just uh, restoring itself, at the end, we know that God is behind all of those things. But then David says, who redeems your life from destruction. The blessing of having been freed from those sinful habits that were destroying our lives. You know, this is, this is what sin does. You know, people think, well, you know, why doesn't God want me to sin? I mean, sin is fun. I like doing this stuff. Well, you know what? It is fun. For a season. The Bible doesn't deny that. The Bible tells us. <laughs> I love this about the Bible. It's a very honest book. There is pleasure in sin, but just remember this final part of the statement, for a season. It's a passing pleasure. And underneath that pleasure is poison. And this is what happens as we give our lives over to sin. What we're really doing is giving our lives over to destructive behavior. And those destructive behaviors, ultimately, they take their toll on our lives. But David says that he has redeemed our lives from destruction. And that's what he does when he redeems us, when he brings us to himself, he delivers us from those destructive behaviors. You know, I spent the last week with my dad. He came and visited and um, it's been a long time since we spent this much time together and we just had such a, a wonderful time together. But he hasn't been down, he moved out of the area here 38 years ago and he hasn't really come back and, you know, been in the area too much other than just in and out, in and out. But he hasn't spent a whole lot of time. So we took some time and we drove around. I kind of took them back through our old neighborhoods and some of the areas. And 
uh, we, we kind of uh, stroll down memory lane. But some of our memories were, you know, pretty, <laughs> uh, you know, we were remembering some pretty rough things back then. And uh, we were talking about some of the kind of the wild and crazy things we used to do. My dad's just a little bit o uh, over 16 years older than I am. So there was a time in our lives when we were more like brothers and kind of partners in crime. You know, we were doing a lot of things that uh, we shouldn't have been doing at the time or at any time for that matter. But, uh, but as we were going and we were, we were kind of reminiscing about some of this stuff, I, I said to him at one point, I go, Dad, can you believe that you used to drive your Harley around with a sawed-off shotgun at your side? I mean, what were you thinking? He said, yeah, you know, obviously I wasn't thinking. I was crazy and it's a miracle that I'm alive today. And I said, yeah, amen. It is indeed a miracle that we're alive today. But looking back over those things and thinking about how God redeemed us from those destructive behaviors. And I was reminding him of some of my own experiences of being in jail and being arrested for drugs and you know all of these kinds of things that were part of my life back in those days. And the destructive course that, that I was on at the time. But the Lord redeems us from destruction. And so as we look back at those things, man, it just, it, it more magnifies the goodness and the grace of God. We just think, wow, the Lord is so good that he delivered us from those things. And I know that uh, some of you here have stories that are, are similar. Freed from those sinful habits. But then he says, crowned us. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Think of that picture of crowning. You know, when somebody is crowned, there's something wonderful about that. Well, what does God crown us with? He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercy. And he satisfies us with good things. And when God redeems us, you know what he does is he, he renews us. I've seen many people over the years that sin has taken such a severe toll on them. It's, it's in their countenance. You can see it. You can look at them and you can say, man, sin has really taken its toll on this person. And then those same, some of those same people, you see them after having been forgiven and come into a relationship with Christ. And it's like there's a renewal that begins to take place. Their countenance changes. Their countenance softens. And there, there's something about their life. And there's like a renewal of youth sometimes. And it's, it's amazing. I've seen this with people over and over throughout the years. I've seen people who were young that looked old because of sin and received Jesus and began to follow him and live according to his word. And when they got older, then they looked young. Anybody that's getting older, you want to stay young? <laughs> Jesus has the plan. <laughs> he'll, he'll keep you young. Because he renews our youth just as the eagle. And he satisfies us with good things. Listen, David's big point here is the goodness of God. 
And we need to remember, if we don't remember anything else about God, we need to remember this one thing, God is good. God is good and his ways are good and his plan is good. I was talking to 500 plus young men last night between the ages of 18 and maybe 22. And as I was sharing with them, I was just trying to give them the Bible in 15 minutes, you know, the message of the Bible. And I just began with the point number one that um, we are all created by God and made in his image and likeness. Point number two, we're all created with a purpose. And that purpose ultimately is to know God and to live in his plan. But then we talked about the reality of how, how sin came in and messed that up. But we also talked about how God loves us deeply, even though we've sinned. And how God sent to us a savior. And how as we received that savior, God literally does something amazing in our lives and how he does all of this out of his goodness. Not because he was forced to, he could have rightfully just written us off forever, said, you know, bad experiment, forget these humans, these people are hopeless, uh, we're moving on and we're gonna do something else. But he didn't do that. Rather, he, because of his goodness, he redeemed us. A.W. Tozer said this, and I love this quote from him about the goodness of God. He said, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of good toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. Do you think of God as being friendly? If you don't, then your thoughts about God are inaccurate. God is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. God is obviously and undoubtedly the most aligned person, in, uh, maligned person in all of history. Constantly, the devil, through various means and through poisoning the minds of men, are, uh, is maligning the character of God, the goodness of God. But the Bible reminds us over and over again of the fact that God is indeed good. And that's what we are being told here. As David goes on, he begins to describe, having looked at the, the benefits, he begins to describe, and, and he's reminding us here of the nature of the God that we are connected with. And remember, I told you that when you find Lord in all capitals, what you're talking about is the name of God. And we'll just use the name Yahweh because I think that's the most, probably the closest to the Hebrew. And so we're talking about Yahweh. When we talk about the name of God, we're talking about the character of God. And so here we have a description, really, of God's character in those verses that we already referred to, but backing up a little bit to verse eight, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. 
He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed their transgression, our, our transgressions from us. But listen to this, verses 13 and 14. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Verses 13 and 14 are my favorite verses in the whole of the psalm. Because it's really speaking to something that I, I can really grab hold of this verse personally because I think of my own relationship with my kids. And I think, wow, this is, this is how I am toward my kids. This is, this is how God is toward me. Now, you, some of you know I have four children. I have five grandchildren. And, you know, they've all messed up. I mean, not the grandchildren. They haven't messed up, but the, the, their parents have messed up plenty of times. The grandchildren are perfect, of course. But, you know, my kids have messed up. My kids have done things that they shouldn't have done and they're, they're ashamed of the things they've done and, uh, you know, they were, in some cases, some bad things. But, you know, I never for one second stopped loving them. I never for one second wanted anything but the very best for them. And I never for one second was inclined to do anything toward them except have mercy on them. And that's me, and I'm a sinner. But think of God, who's not a sinner, whose pure love and mercy and kindness and goodness, that's really what David is describing here. He is a compassionate father. I like what Timothy Keller said in his devotional on the Psalms. He said, parents know their children's besetting sins. Yet a good father loves his children anyway. Indeed, the more weak and needy a child is, the more the father's heart goes out to him or her. So God knows us to the bottom in our worst state, yet nevertheless loves us to the skies, exalts us to be his sons and daughters. God does not just pardon our sins, he adopts us into his family giving us his love, access and prayer, a share in the inheritance of the glory, and even his family resemblance, the Holy Spirit, which produces God's own character in us. I love that. He's so right. It's so true that the weak and the needy child, oftentimes the, the father's heart goes out to that one. Because as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. Do you know that God knows everything about you? He knows everything you ever did. Everything. The stuff that nobody else knows, he knows it all. You know what? God also knows everything you're ever going to do. He knows everything. Now, to be loved by somebody who doesn't know us, well, that's, that's good. But sometimes you think, wow, man, if they really knew me, I wonder if they would still love me. 
there's one person for sure, there might be others, but there's one person for sure that loves you and knows you better than you even know yourself. And that's God. That's his love for us. As a father pities his children. And, and, and the, those times when we are the most feeble and the most frail, because the picture here, he knows our frame. He remembers what, that, that we are dust. You know what that's talking about? It's talking about our frailty. It's talking about our inclination toward failure, toward sin. Listen, did you know that when you sin, God doesn't say, you're not my kid anymore. Adios, see you later. He doesn't do that. But sometimes we think he does that. It's bad theology. We need to understand. This isn't a permission slip to go out and sin because, you know, God's going to love me anyway. God does love you. you. You run out and start sinning and he'll show you he really loves you. He'll give you a good spanking. <laughs> he disciplines his children. The Bible says that. It makes that clear. But we also need to remember this. Like I said, you know, I think back to a season in our lives, and I've mentioned it before, when our children had made bad choices and gone in the wrong direction, and never for one second changed anything. It, it just gave them more of an intensity of, of that love that wanted to pull them back in. And you know, whatever your failure might have been, whether it's in your distant past, before you became a believer, know this, that as far as the East is from the West, God's removed that from you. Don't buy into that thing where this is coming back and you're being reminded and, oh no, you know, I, I don't know because I, I did that and gosh, I sure hope that someday and, you know, may, I don't know if God can ever forgive me. He's already forgiven you. It's done. And when you come to him, because you fall into that condemnation and you come to him going, oh God, I can't believe, Lord, I want to just confess that 30 years ago I did this. And, you know, God would almost just say, okay, we're over that now. Can we move on? You know, God's beyond that. It's, it's washed away. But these are real things that people struggle with. I meet Christians all the time who think that they're still possibly going to be punished. And they think, well, I probably got a lot of more suffering to do because, you know, I, I committed so many sins. I talked to a young man last night and he came to me and he said, you know, I shared the, the gospel message and he came and he said, uh, well, you know, I, I, I'm going through this really hard time and, and I'm suffering through this, but, I, but I'm just hoping that through my suffering, God will see my suffering and he will, he will take that. And that will, you know, he was saying to me, I, I'm just hoping that, that God will smile on me, that, that I can get God's favor by suffering. And that's what he was thinking. He was thinking that he had to suffer in order for God to love him. And I said, listen, no, you got it backward. God did the suffering. So you don't have to do the suffering. That's the gospel. We don't suffer to get God's favor. God suffered so he could give us his favor. That's what grace is. Grace is, we define it sometimes, unmerited favor. What does that mean? It means favor that you didn't merit. You didn't work for it. 
Jesus worked for it. He did all the work. I like that when sometimes people say, Jesus did all the heavy lifting. He did on the cross. He lifted the sins off of you and me. And he placed them on himself. And he bore the penalty of our sin so that we could know that we are the children of God, that we are forgiven, that he <coughs> knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And when we sin, God doesn't kick us when we're down. His heart is to always pull us back up, to dust us off and to get us going forward. That's the heart of God. God help us to have more of that heart toward each other. You know, sometimes we're, we're like our own uh, worst enemy as Christians. You know, we see a, a fellow Christian who stumbled and then he's down there on the ground. It's like, all right, let's go kick him. Let's kick him. He did this or she did that. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God is to lift us out of the dung heap and to set us on the throne of princes. That's what the word of God tells us. And so know this, our God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And so what is our response to all of this? Our response is, bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh Lord. You know, if we just got up every morning and realized the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. If we sat on the end of our bed before we ever even put a foot on the floor and just thought about that, it would make a major difference in our day. I'm stepping out of bed into the mercies of God today. Isn't that a great thought? His mercies are new every morning. You might have totally screwed up yesterday. And you get up in the morning, and, and of course, what's lingering there is, oh gosh, what happened yesterday? But no, the Lord says his mercies are right there. You just say, Lord, forgive me. And the moment you say that with a sincerity in your heart, you know what? God just says, you're forgiven, let's go. That's the truth of the grace of God. And so our response is, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And you see, this is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again. And when I'm saying preach the gospel, we're reminding ourselves of how sinful we are, yes, but how good God is. That's the reality. Now, one final quote from Charles Spurgeon here. He said, many are our faculties, emotions, and capacities, but God has given them all to us, and they ought all to join in chorus to his praise. Half-hearted, ill-conceived, unintelligent praises are not such as we should render to our loving Lord. If the law of justice demanded all our heart, soul, mind for the creator, much more may the law of gratitude put in a comprehensive claim for the homage of our whole being to the God of grace. You see, when we realize 
how good God is and how much he's done for us already and how much he has in store for us, man, that ought to just evoke in us praise, spontaneous words of Lord, thank you. You know, God is so easy to bless. God is so easy to please. David, in another Psalm, he asks a question and then he answers it. He says, what shall I give to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? And then the answer is, I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. When you think about all of God's benefits, all of the good things he's done, David says, what can I give back? Give back receiving his salvation. That's how we give back. We receive, we drink the cup of his salvation and we call upon his name. And that delights the heart of our Father. And so finally, practically, how do we do this? How do we have that, that joyous, spontaneous blessing flowing from our hearts to God? Well, we reflect on and not forget his benefits. We thank him, we praise him, we honor him, and we do all of that with obedience. You know, when you think about sin, and I'm talking here about willful sin, you need to remember something. That when you sin willfully, when you just say, well, you know, I'm, I'm gonna do my own thing and I don't care, I want you to know that when you do that, you're not breaking a law, you're breaking a heart. You see, our sins are not against laws. Our sins are against love. And you know, if you, if you, really, if you have any kind of a heart, if any of us have a heart, it, man, it's hard to sin against love. When you realize the love that somebody has for you. And this is the great motivating factor in the life of the Christian. I don't obey God because, man, I, I'm afraid if I don't obey him, he is gonna strike me with a bolt of lightning and fry me. That's not why I obey God. I obey God because God loves me so much that he did this for me. He went to a cross and died in my place. How could I how can I do anything less than reciprocate with obedience to him? You see, our obedience to God is driven by his love for us. You know, when I was a kid and I used to venture, you know, out into my sinful behaviors, when I embarked on my sinful lifestyle, knowingly, willingly, you know, at a certain age, you know the most difficult thing about sinning for me? It wasn't that I was gonna get busted by the cops or, you know, that didn't matter to me. You know what it was? My mom. It was my mom. Man, I had to fight hard to sin back in those days because I thought, you know, my mom, this is gonna break her heart if she finds out what's happened here. But not even that could prevent me ultimately from sinning. But 
there's a greater love than your mom or your dad or any other human being could ever have for you. The love that demonstrated itself in going to a cross and dying in our place. And so every time the opportunity comes to sin, to serve ourselves, to, to you know, do something that God has clearly said he doesn't want us to do, we need to just think about that cross. We need to see the face of Jesus there with that crown of thorns and just say, Lord, I know you love me and I wanna reciprocate that love by glorifying you with my life, not contradicting who I am, but honoring you as an obedient child. That's how we bless the Lord ultimately, as we praise him from a heart that is rooted in obedience to his word. So Lord, help us to do that. And Lord, may we like David in those times where we might find our hearts kind of cold and hard. May we arouse ourselves. May we preach to ourselves the gospel of your goodness and all of your benefits. And Lord, may those things remind us continually of your great love for us. And Lord, may we respond to you uh, joyfully because of how good you are. And so, Lord, we bless your holy name today. We thank you. We thank you so much for all of your benefits, Lord. We thank you that you have indeed forgiven our iniquities. You've washed away our sins. We're no longer liable to punishment. We're no longer being crushed by the guilt. We're no longer controlled by the shame. You've freed us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you redeemed our life from destruction. Thank you that you've healed us from the effects of sin and other things. Thank you, Lord, that you have crowned us with loving kindness. And Lord, we just return to you today praise and thanksgiving for all that you've done. And we do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.